Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thanks for tuning in. We have on the show today sports performance coaches Rich Burnett and John Garish. Rich is the president and director of athletic development for Triple F Sports Training in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's also the co-founder and CEO of Athletic Assessment Technology, known more commonly as the Plyomat. Rich has over 10 years of experience working in both the high school and the NCAA Division I strength and conditioning settings. John Garish is the director of athletic development and performance at North Broward Prep School in Coconut Creek, Florida. He's also the school's head track and field coach. So with that combined strength and then track and field training experience, John has been a two-time guest on this podcast speaking on a variety of plyometric and speed training topics. So for the episode today, we'll be talking about plyometric training in light of reactivity. Oftentimes in uh, assessing an athletic performance program, we will look at standing vertical jump. A standing vertical jump, although a great test of general explosive power, does not factor in ground contact time. It doesn't factor in how long it took you to produce that force. And there are much better markers out there in terms of transfer to explosive athleticism, sprint times, jump abilities that do factor in ground contact time that we can use not only to assess athletes, but also to use those principles and how we lay out our plyometric program. So that's going to be what we're getting into today. Rich and John have some awesome ideas with athletic assessment based on ground contact time and plyometrics, training ideas, uh, training correlations based off reactive strength indexes, and more. We'll be getting a lot into single versus double leg reactive strength as well, which is a really important point to touch on. This was an awesome podcast, uh, a great way to level up your plyometric knowledge. And I really enjoyed talking to Rich and John here for the episode today. So let's get to podcast 375 with Rich Burnett and John Garish. Well, hey, I know in honor of um, Labor Day weekend, you know, Rich, you were just mentioning something about fishing. Uh, like like things that are the opposite of strength and conditioning athletic performance. John, I'm curious, what's your what's your what do you do when you're not coaching? Like, what's your reset button? Uh, I'm a I'm a big beach water guy for sure. Not necessarily fishing, but being in South Florida, it's easy to do all year round. And it's you know it's been interesting in the past years. I feel like podcast listening, book reading, like show watching, I try to get actually more further away from strength and conditioning and track and field, not because I don't love it and not because it's no longer a passion, simply because I think it, I find it a little bit easier to turn off, which is nice, you know? So I'd say definitely the easy answer is I, I like to go just hang out at the beach and try not to think about anything. That's the that's the easiest way for me to turn off. That's what I plan on doing with the rest of the Labor Day once we're once we're finished up here. That's my love. Yeah, fish, fishing for you, Rich. What is now, man? I mean, I grew up saltwater fishing right off the the coast. You know, hop on the Yeti with a silver spoon and, and catch a few things. It's you know pretty convenient. The beach is ten minutes from my house, close to what you know John's experiencing now in South Florida. But you know now. I got a little John boat that I got a decent deal on Facebook marketplace, of course, and, uh, got a two boys, eight and five. So it's easy just to toss them in there, man. And then take the boat down 10 minutes to a really nice boat launch. That's surrounded by mountains and trees. I mean, it, and it's pretty quiet out there. It's, it's a beautiful spot. So Knoxville has its perks and that's what I was told when I was persuaded to move here. So and it's yeah. paying off, man. I mean, it's a beautiful serene area for sure so yeah we're loving it we just, we're just getting started though so i'm by no means a real angler but i'm getting there yeah <laughs> i've never had luck fishing sadly <laughs> never never had luck well hey let's talk about rsi here so reactive strength before we get i guess too far or right into it maybe we can start with definitions i know i had the just jump mat forever back in the day and there was the four jump test. And it's funny, it took me a long time to figure out what that middle number was. And the four jump test, they always gave me three numbers. It's like, oh, you got 2.8 or 3.1. Then I finally figured it was airtime divided by ground time or that function. So tell me a little bit about, uh, well, first, what RSI is or reactive strength is. And then we can get a little bit, uh, or maybe then we'll talk about how uh, you use it in your programming. So what is your, um, how does it find itself into your plyometric and speed training programming? 
So I'll, I'll take the lead on this, John, and just kind of brief history of, of RSI and my experience. And then because John naturally started and, and I connecting on RSI kind of later on as our relationship started to grow just naturally through the NHS SCA and things. But I mean, it was about eight or nine years ago when I borrowed the Just Jump Mat from the kinesiology department at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi, and was using it as just a quicker way to test verticals, you know, than the Vertec that we had. And um switching over to four jump mode and jumping on it and was like what is this middle number so the same story Joe, like <laughs> yeah. what what is this number what does it mean i started asking questions started like testing athletes on it and there really isn't much literature from just jump and and paul mackabjack who created it in you know 1991 and when it first hit the market anyway and he called it explosive leg power factor elpf and if you still had the old manual or, or went to the probiotics website, you know, you'd find, you know, some information on it. But essentially, you know, he figured out whether it was through some other, you know, kinesiology type person um, or just kind of on his own as a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer that, you know, I can actually find out this other quality about an athlete, not just their vertical and, and displacement, but actually how they interact with the ground. And so. I think the word explosive gets used most often by the layperson, which is honestly what who Paul was being in, having an engineering background, because it it helps us identify if an athlete's explosive, they're just pushing away off the ground very well and very efficiently and very powerfully. So, like we try and think of words to describe what that is, and as you know. Uh, educated kinesiologists, we know that to be elasticity or stretch shortening cycle or um, stiffness. You know, there, we have so many ways for us to even define it. But, you know, the layperson will always say, man, that athlete is really explosive. And then and then it's their legs. Explosive leg power factor is what Paul had come up with on that. And, you know, we ended up having a relationship. Uh, he and I just kind of as an advisory role for me whenever I moved to Atlanta and convinced Gary Schofield when we were both at GEC to you know, that we had to continue down this path for me of, of measuring this quality in all of our athletes. Cause I, I was just leaving Texas A&M Corpus Christi when I really just went deep dive into RSI and which is what I began to understand it once I did more research, but essentially um, Paul and I started to kind of have a relationship and, and he donated four masks to our school. He would travel from Huntsville to come see me. Um, and, and it was pretty cool just to hear stories of, uh, guys he had tested and girls. I'm sure he's heard, he tested all kinds of athletes on this thing in the early nineties, but Dennis Rodman was the one that always stuck out to me as he said, having one of the highest four jump pogo scores. And it was like in the three sixes or three sevens or something crazy, you know, on the four jump. So all the four jump listeners out there, you know, that that's kind of off the charts. And so, you know, just like you said, though, Joel, by definition, using that piece of technology as well to apply on that now, it's simply whatever protocol you choose, one jump, four jump, 10 jumps, you know, the Scandinavian rebound tests consist of, you know, multiple jumps as well, but it's flight time divided by contact time. It's really that simple. Yeah. So, yeah. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. I, first off, I appreciate Rich being here uh, with me because, you know, that's, these are oftentimes questions that I, I lean on Rich for the answer to. Um, but I think he hit it on the head with that last point is it's basically a calculation. So I relied on him largely with this um, technology to be able to apply that calculation and find kind of the simplest ways possible to um, work it in our weight room, work it in our strength sessions, work it in our speed sessions out on the track or turf. Um, and that's, that's pretty simply how we use it. I like to keep things pretty simple. I understand it as a calculation and it's a calculation that helps us kind of move the needle of our program and understand our athletes a little bit better. Yeah. So, John, maybe I'll start with you then just turning this around into, well, how does it find its way into uh, programming? I know we've talked a lot in previous podcasts about like skips, gallops, which all by nature are very reactive things. Um, how does it shake down in your program? And do you use it like kind of as a priming, like a teaching uh, part, uh, testing? Like, tell me a little bit in light, especially too, of all the reactive stuff that we talked about last time with those things. I'm curious how it lands in your programming and how your athletes are experiencing that feedback. Yeah, I think it's all of the above, to be honest. Um, easy way to answer that. Um, prior to using RSI, I think it was something that simply we guessed with. 
we understood like some athletes look bouncy, some athletes look explosive, look twitchy, whatever kind of blanket term you want to use. And we didn't have a way to easily identify or quantify it. So as a track and field coach, one of the main points for me that, or one of the main differences, differences, I guess I thought in at least like talent identification um, on our campus was many of the students. So we used the first time I think we used RSI because once I received the first pile, Matt, Rich, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we were in like the center of the pandemic. It was definitely 2020, uh, maybe early one. I'm, I, I could be wrong on that, but I know for sure that we weren't on campus. So I didn't have like a large number of students to work with. A lot of things were, were, were tested. I used it myself. So when we brought it to campus, I think the very first time that we used the biomat and used these features um, to calculate RSI was as basically a, an identification for our track and field tryout. Um, the way that we run our program, we don't necessarily cut student athletes or students from our team, but we identify what um, you know, event or area that they might find some success in. RSI provided a lot of value, certainly to the sprinters. Um, but especially Joel, you know, I love the triple jump and triple <laughs> yeah. jump was like the primary thing that happened that year. We also happened to have a lot of success at the state level. Um, those athletes that had this high level of success at the state level, um, go figure, uh, showed some of the most impressive, uh, RSI values. Um, so yeah, you know, kind of looking at it from a, a skill identification, um, through testing, um, but also from a development standpoint, testing over time, if you're not assessing or guessing, um, as a training tool as well, just in uh, priming, um, activities, whether it be before our track practice or, or before something we've got going in the lit, uh, in the weight room for a lift. Um, there's a, there's a wide range of ways that we've used RSI for our students. Cool. I'm, I'm curious too, with the priming, particularly, I know for the testing, you know, back with, back when I had the just jump, it would be test basically with track and field. I would just, for the most part, switch off, um, the four jump and a counter movement jump every other week. So just not to get stale or whatnot. And, but I think that I also did have a contact time back when that, uh, the just jump had a contact function. Cause at some year it stopped having that, which really frustrated me once I got the second iteration of it and I would use it for, like hurdle hops, I would put it after like, if it was like a series of six hurdles, I would put it in between maybe the third and fourth hurdle or something, just so people had an idea of what their times were. And it was, I don't, but I don't, I never really had hard numbers. It was just kind of a feedback tool in the sense of, I, I think I would say, hey, try to be under 0.2 here on these hurdle hops if you can. And these days, more of where I've gone to is, because you said priming, and I've gone to the place where... I try to do more of the warm-up jumps in a series uh, with a priority on lower contact times and then let it unload into normal or longer contact time type situation. Uh, and I've found, I've done a lot of that just organically too, not necessarily with a contact map, but just say, hey, try to be quick off the ground for this series. That's the priority. And then once the height of the hurdle or the bar, something goes up, then you can self-organize more. Um, but I'm just curious when you mentioned priming, I'm curious how that shakes out for what you're looking at with your, um, athletes with plyometrics or speed or power. Yeah, that's a pretty valid example. Um, or if we have a speed day on the track or on the turf, um, once we finish our general and specific prep, basically I like to include some form of plyo. So we discussed, uh, in great detail in the past on some gallops and skips and hops. And one of the things that I remember, I'll always have always resonated with me is just kind of emphasizing speed through those movements and uh the thought process is again preparing the the student athlete for what the session is going to look like um and in a priming in the weight room instance maybe where we're doing um just multiple hops before uh you know a, a, a set on back squat or whatever you know insert any movement um i think it's in opportunity to fill a bucket that might be something that we're missing in the weight room as well so i think it it checks a lot of boxes i think when we're out on the field or out on the turf it prepares the body it prepares um, those foot contacts for what we want them to be or what we want to um, set them up for success in and then when we're in the weight room it might be something probably that we're missing out on that that speed component no matter how fast we're moving the bar no matter what movement we're doing with load on our backs we're probably not going to be moving in a way and preparing the body in the way that uh, some of those multiple hops and emphasizing ground contact will. 
Yeah, Rich, how does it how does it shake out into your program for like the applied usage um, in a, like a typical plyometric session? <clears throat> yeah, so one of my favorite analogies I use for my kids to, especially my like really young kids, 12, 13, 14 years old, who are not track athletes, who don't really understand how to use the ground well, who have never really done structured plyometrics and known how to organize their body uh, when they're trying to push off the ground explosively, is is with talking about a basketball. So, I mean, there's nothing worse than going to the basketball gym, looking through the ball cage and grabbing a flat ball. Like you grab the flat ball and you try and bounce it. And it's just like, there's nothing to it. You, it doesn't bounce at all. You're trying to dribble and, or take a shot and it's just kind of ruins your day. You know, as you guys were talking about priming, like the human body sometimes, a lot of times, especially with, with us three, you know, if we, we, we were to go do some plyo workout right now, we'd probably have to inflate ourselves. We'd probably have to prime our nervous system to the extent to where we're actually like able to be bouncy. So I use that analogy a lot with the kids of like, as you do this one drill of hopping off this box and immediately trying to get back on, like your core and everything needs to be one system to truly stiffen up at the right time as you're contacting the ground, like an inflated basketball. Like we want this basketball to be full of air. We want your core to be quote unquote full of air and stiff in your spine. We don't want to collapse you know as we contact the ground we want to come right back onto the box and it's amazing what that will do to just help a kid understand the proprioceptive aspect of it it's like here comes the ground and at the right time i pop back on the, the best athletes in the world you don't have to explain that to you don't even have to go down that rabbit hole like they'll they'll hop off and hop back on it just comes natural to them and and so most true athletes that i work with i don't necessarily have to do a lot of that they still need to be primed to some extent in terms of like a, a decent warm-up of some dribbles or bounds or you know anything before like a good speed workout but but it's just cool to to really know and identify that some kids you know not only do they need to be brought awareness to how this type of plyometric and reactive strength activity works but how in in the role that their core and everything else plays to quote unquote stiffen up at the right time. Um, but they also some athletes just truly aren't even capable of it. I mean, you got these, you know, three hundred pound offensive linemen that are 16, 17 years old and they don't realize how important it is to actually like use the ground and be explosive and and have fast feet. And the difference between the ones that get a scholarship and the ones that don't are the ones that are just kind of in the way. They're just big, slow, you know, their feet don't move fast. They don't use the ground well. Whereas the big explosive ones, man, they they can they're as agile really as an athlete half their size and a lot of that just is a reactive strength thing so yeah, as far as how it plays into our programming it, it simply helps me further identify what type of plyos an athlete is ready for i mean just to be honest everything i do kind of goes upwards progressively with a lot of the population i work with and so like if i see an athlete just crumbling on a on a particular plyo drill that's way too advanced and then we're going to scale that back lower the box height if it's a kind of a quick speed box hop lower the hurdle height. I mean, it's anything that any of us would do because their their reactive strength abilities aren't in line with the size of the, even their frame or they're just not getting it. They're just not stiffening up at the right time. So, Yeah. I, so with the RSI and or the reactive strength, I know, and I've, I've seen this, um, I think Dan Bach had mentioned something about this and I've seen this as well, uh, like a double leg reactive strength versus a single leg. And I know, Rich, we've talked about single leg uh, beforehand but i know with the four jump like when i had my best just jump four jump so two legs like bilateral jumping um i i actually i was getting a pretty good score my age 24 i was at 3.44 so i was getting up there uh, i think it was like you know a just jump listed average was 30 inches and then the ground contact was like 0.21 of course it's not 30 inches each jump but um that year with high jump though you think oh well, that was if I was the best at that, wouldn't my high jump be the best or my triple jump? And it wasn't. Um, I don't think I was as fast in sprinting that year either than I'd been in the past. Um, but single leg, you had talked about that, Rich. And then, you know, John, I was going to ask you a bit more with the talent ID of like a single leg reactive strength testing or assessing one's like basically single leg hopping ability as kind of a gold standard of athleticism. So I'd be really curious to hear what you guys have to say about the double versus single leg piece when it comes to actually measuring someone's uh, power output in that situation. I'll comment real quick because I've been doing it a lot and I know John probably hasn't done it formally, you know, 
to the extent that, that I have with truly just doing it a, a bilateral repeat pogo test and a single leg RSI test that I've just instituted at, at Triple F since we, we opened almost a year ago. And it's really interesting to know that just because an athlete is good at bilateral does not mean they're good at, at, at unilateral and mm. vice versa. So uh, one of our best uh, pogo kids on on the five hop is what I do with the plyo mat. I mean, he is he's slow and he's not very good at the single leg one. So and then I have athletes that are just like, oh, like I just know who they are. I know the type of player that they are. You know, they're one of the best athletes in Knoxville type of thing. When they hop in the plyo mat, they're just hopping and floating. And it, it just kind of assumes that like, all right, they're going to do really well in this test because they just, again, they're explosive. They can make plays, but it's just not always the case. I mean, when you get to kind of that run of the mill athlete, that's not quite the elite one, but somewhere in the middle, you know, it's, it's interesting all the kinds of stuff I see, but, but I have for sure noticed with a single leg RSI one hop, which is from my left foot forward to my left pop, get as high as I can land on two. I got a video that I can show you and, and, and. Yeah, I can put the, show, yeah, I could show it in the show notes uh, for you know people who can be directed there. It's just a protocol that I just adopted and went with. One that we've talked about, Joel. One that that John and I surely have spitballed it around at some point. And just like, hey, I just want to see vertical displacement quickly off of the left foot, land on two, and that has had a huge correlation with my population of kids uh, with with speed on every split, not just the. The top speed split, which I thought it would be more on the kind of more mm-hmm. elastic part of the sprint, but it's also been in the in the early phases, the zero to five and the five to six. So, with a totally different population, I'm sure the the you know the there's more of a shift to where the elastic part shows out more yeah. in the back end. But also keep in mind that this test is not a repeat test. If it was a repeat test, I'm sure it would be a lot more indicative of the kind of the top end of the speed of the sprint. Um, but you know because it's that one off just pop off my left land on two pop off my right land on two and i averaged both together it's been really interesting to see um what it tells me and what it doesn't tell me i mean to be honest like it it's a separate quality in and of itself that these a lot of these untrained kids just need to improve upon uh, as well as everything else you know it doesn't always have that super strong correlation because they're they're missing other general qualities they're they're not very strong. And so it's okay that that's not making that direct connection yet because they have so much that they need to work on. So. Yeah. The, um, I would have loved to see how Dennis Rodman did his, uh, his four jump test, <laughs> like what, what his strategy was and things like that. I think about, well, even with what you said there, Rich, I, I even think about the differences between that. Like if it's a, a single leg reactive strength where you like you're starting off of the mat and then you jump on it, right? That's how you, is that how you do it where you start off and then you get a little horizontal movement into it? Yeah. And I have to cue the kids, uh, carefully a little bit because I don't want them to jump onto the mat. Like I, yeah. I want them to like push forward into it, you know? So I tell them like, you're like a skipping stone, like go for shoot forward into it and then pop off. Like you would like a penultimate step on a, yeah. on, on a, when I'm trying to take horizontal, you know, energy into a vertical displacement, but a lot of them, they'll like jump up onto it first. I'm like, no, that's, that's, that's <laughs> too much energy to deal with. Just it's hard enough as it is go forward, you know, left to left and, and right to right. So that kind of normalizes across the board when they have to start from their left and go to left versus right to left. That would probably be a, you know, um, a totally different, uh output on that but you know repeat single leg stuff i I actually built that into the plyo mat as a protocol i haven't done it a lot of it and collected a ton of data on it yet but i'd I'd want to but that's where we're at just generally speaking with rsi like it's a young it's a science overall with this metric and we're learning that there's so many more variables than than we would have loved to thought when we first discovered it you know um but getting more and more data on more and more different populations is going to be just so helpful for all of us across the board. So, but we have to take the time to do it, you know, consistently and, and in a structured environment to find out exactly what it's telling us. Yeah. With, I was just saying with the horizontal, I do think there's something to having some horizontal amplitude in the test versus it being purely vertical, just because if it's completely vertical, it is a little bit less representative of motions in sport that use like horizontal into vertical or there's like angular rolling actions or i think about like if you're just doing like single leg hopping or a single leg jumping where you're kind of cycling the foot up a little bit and and covering horizontal ground the way the ankle works is actually 
uh, quite a bit different than if you were just in place going up and down and you weren't covering any horizontal ground. And it's it's more athletic when you have a little bit. It, actually, it feels easier too. Like if you're just to stand on one leg and you you start jumping on one leg and moving forward, there's a feeling of ease with that that's actually much easier than um, if you're doing it vertically. And I think it's because, again, it's that conversion. It almost allows a little bit even more elasticity where I think if it's just pure vertical, it's almost a little bit more not, I mean, it's not like night and day, but I think it's a little bit more muscular. But I was thinking with the two, with the bilateral, like if I'm doing an in-place hopping up and down, it's interesting to think of the strategies athletes can use to try to be good at that. One of which I was really good at, which was internally rotating both knees together a little bit because I'm already internally rotated. And then using a lot of upper body whip, just like this huge upper body whip, internal rotation. But that's not what like a sprint stride looks like you know it's not even what like a high jump takeoff looks like there might be a lot of upper body whip but you're not going to get that huge level of internal rotation that's facilitated by being bilateral or standing two leg on the ground it's it's a, it's a different world once you're on one foot and i just think i think that's really cool because i do think you know people would say like hey yeah there's not like dan bucket said hey the four jump if you're great at the four jump it doesn't mean you're going to be fast but i do think on the flip side and dan might have mentioned this if you're fast, that probably is a good sign for the four jump for the most part. And there is skill in the four jump, but it's almost like with that, it's almost like a reverse correlation where things that are single leg and faster will transfer to more stuff. Things that are bilateral and slower have a greater chance of being specific unto themselves. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious. You know, yeah, go ahead. You know, I'll comment on that with uh, John. When he first started adopting a two RSI test, of course, you can pick a thousand different protocols, right? But he decided to go with a more forward kind of jump from one mat to another mat. So that's that's how he formally tested all his kids when he was talking oh, about okay. the trial. I'll, I'll let him comment on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm interested in hearing for, that. For, for track and field group, that makes total sense. Anything that even kind of resembles the gait cycle in general from a forward standpoint. I've also had a lot of success with the lateral test uh, with with a physical therapist that, that we work with to kind of look at is an athlete ready for return to play laterally speaking. Um, and, and he's, he's adopting that now with a lot of his clients. So, and that feels very natural. Like when I'm doing that lateral test, like it feels so much better than the single leg forward hop. Mm. Um, so to, that is the question. It's like, can we still make sure we choose the test that we don't have to sit there and like belabor the athlete to really do the right way and find the right strategy by us telling them, but rather they can, kind of naturally find that strategy on their own i think that's what john experienced with the forward two hop you know over a hurdle right john i think it was like yep. a set height exactly yeah we would just use mini hurdles um we would use mini hurdles and the first one um i actually didn't use the mini hurdle so athlete was standing off the mat we had two mats and athletes start starting um off the mat basically like a uh, something that we used is a little hop, big jump in our training on a weekly basis, or at least in the, depending on the time of year and who we have. So I wanted to find a way to kind of quantify that. So a way that we were able to do it and it kind of introduced some of that horizontal component was an athlete would start off of, we had two mats, um, one mini hurdle. So mat, mini hurdle, mat, the athlete would actually start behind or in front, whichever way your context is. Um, the first mat they would take a little hop onto the first mat i would tell them to be as quick as possible off that first mat and a big jump pretend the hurdles 10 times the height jump as high as humanly possible spend a lot of time in the air and land on the second one uh the mats it's not like the mats were a, a wide you know distance apart but there was still a horizontal component to it that i think was beneficial um that that was something that we used but I, I kind of wanted to touch on the double leg versus single leg in our, in my community and, and who I see is I see working at a high school, working with speed school, which is a training program for students from six years old to 26 years old and all different levels at the high school level. Obviously it's a little bit more condensed than that, but still we have future collegiate uh, triple jumpers and athletes. Like I mentioned that we won't cut from our track and field program. So in many ways, <clears throat> excuse me, in many ways, we'll be going through the same training program. Um, and I think one of the things that I noticed early on with our RSI testing was I needed to be really selective of volume um, because number one, we have a hard track surface. 
Number two, some of the testing might have been either, uh, yeah, we had the mat as um, a little bit of a buffer of the of the ground, but sometimes we would do that testing out on the sidewalk, just off to the side of the track. Sometimes we would do that testing in the weight room that it would uh, irritate shins a little bit. So I decided that I really, I mean, easy decision. We needed to be really selective of volume there. Um, so speaking from generality, going from general to specific, what I found was that I saw a lot of, I still saw quite a bit of value in a bilateral RSI testing. Basically our primary, um, assessment would be the one that I just mentioned. Um, and much of our alternating or single leg files, I wanted to happen in a more realistic, um, way out on the track or out on the turf. So that's where we did a lot of our skips and gallops. And that was kind of where I saw um, a different method of plyometric being very applicable again in our track and field um, setting in our, I mean, we've got students from all sports. So that was where I kind of wanted to use it. Um, and we saw a lot of success that way. I wish there was a way to quantify truly ground contacts of those type of movements. Obviously that would be nice. Um, but being able to simply either measure them, we've talked about in great detail, Joel, on skips for speed and gallops for speed, whether it be race or thinking quicker ground contacts, but you can also assess those for distance. And generally, if you found an athlete, if I found an athlete that um, could perform, you know, be at our highest values from an RSI standpoint and be at a high value, um, whether it be power skips for distance and measuring that whatever it may be, that was obviously going to be an athlete that we knew was going to succeed on the runway, but probably was also one of our better athletes on campus, regardless of sport. Supplements may not be the core of a total nutrition and human performance program, but they can really support and enhance the process. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herb supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code JOEL15, that's joel one for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, I was going to say with that, that's one of the questions I had kind of brewing in my head was um, like, like dynamic tests that can kind of be a a single leg RSI test in and of themselves. Like if someone is really good at 10 power skips for distance or, you know, gallops for distance or gallops for speed or however you want to measure those things that are in them of themselves, they're relatively simple. I mean, I would assume that those athletes who are achieving the highest scores on those tests, especially too, because to skip and gallop, it's rhythm, but it's also, there's a quickness to the rhythm. It's not like you're not rewarded for a slow rhythm for the most part. Um, I'd imagine that those athletes who are achieving the best uh, marks on that are more likely than not the ones who would be really good at the single leg RSI as well. I imagine if you ran correlations, like it would probably be pretty darn close. Yeah. And it's interesting because to me, the foot dynamic is going to be different in what we want to see from typically if you're going to perform at a high level on a, on a jump mat with a, again, looking at RSI, basically trying to, even if, even if not necessarily saying RSI, if we're trying to abbreviate ground contact, the athlete's probably going to strike the ground with a more four foot contact. Um, and versus when we go out and we gallop for height, distance, kick, skip for speed, distance, height, uh, I should say more distance or height bound for distance or height. Um, certainly distance, I should say, uh, the foot contact is going to be more hind to mid foot. Um, so it's interesting. It's, you know, that's another reason where just looking at the specificity of the um, challenge, I have found more value in uh, utilizing some methods like that. Um, even though from a, a space standpoint, if we were just working in the weight room, a single leg test would work and it would provide a lot of value to us still. Like I said, there would be some um, uh, concerns of volume and we wanted to really control volume and be very, very selective with what type of RSI values and what type of, um, you know, just general movements we were using with the kids. 
Yeah, the way, Rich, the way you had talked about setting up that basic test, uh, yeah, because thinking about the strategy of how do you end up with the output, um, with the test you were describing, basically just hopping off a mat onto it, it seems like that would really prioritize forefoot, midfoot power like as, as soon as possible versus, yeah, like you said, John, you could definitely use a strategy that involves rolling through the heel more for like, you know, like a, um, a, a skip for height type situation or something like that. Um, yeah, and I would and like i wouldn't even know where to start again you guys are, are are far smarter than i am but thinking from a standpoint of it's interesting because there's a sense there's a relaxation and a, a time rolling over the foot that has to happen to perform at a high level in some of those movements that is quite a bit different from a single leg rsi value that we would get if it were for height it would be amazing to be able to see some of those numbers in terms of contact times um on some of those movements again because it looks super abrupt and it looks if you're looking in real time um as though the athlete is getting off the ground quick which they are um but the methods of to do so are are obviously quite a bit different if it's pushing for distance versus a method that's pushing for height. Yeah, so in terms of contact times and plyometrics, um, so moving, I guess you could say moving things more towards the, maybe as opposed to like where gallops and, and skips and those things are done in a more expansive environment, maybe 20, 30, 40 yards, um, uh, things like a hurdle hop or a single leg hurdle hop is a much more compressed environment uh, in terms of space. And if you're looking at contact times, um, how do you guys go about um, coaching or referencing contact times? Let's just say it's like a set of hurdle hops or mini hurdle hops or something like that. Um, whether you have a mat or you don't, like I'm just, I'm kind of curious because I know, because I know for myself, I think about um, if you don't have something to measure it, I think that it's, it's interesting to think about um, like just manual references or just getting athletes to reference uh, a spectrum of efforts. I know. When I was putting together my uh, master's thesis, which was on depth jumping and then depth jumping over a hurdle or depth jumping up and touching a target like a vertex, and what did that do to ground contact and hip, knee, and ankle torques? Um, I, I read um, in doing the literature review, I read a really interesting study that it was basically calculating like max power output in a depth jump, like basically RSI off of a depth jump situation where an athlete dropped down from a box, hit the ground, jumped up. And the study, I think what they did was they had people, they had people, I, I think they, they had five different uh, outcomes. It was either get off the ground as fast as humanly possible at all costs, you know, jump height be damned. <laughs> and then it was like each next jump was, hey, add a little more jump height, add a little more jump height, add a little bit more jump height. And I think when people have mats, they kind of can play around with that configuration naturally to, to find, oh, this was the, the best configuration. But what these researchers found was that when there was no, you know, direct map feedback for the athletes, they were just given these uh, ground contact time instructions. It was the, it wasn't the lowest ground contact that yielded the best power. It was like the second lowest. So it was almost like, don't be quite, it's like, be as fast as you can off the ground while still kind of jumping high, you know, like that kind of thing almost. Uh, so this, that's, to me, that's an interesting reference point for when I think about, and I think about too, like, John, you talk about like the double bounce or or the little hop to big stick stuff where there is like this organic contrasting where people experience little quick, almost as fast as you can hops and then turn it into something with some vertical, vertical displacement. It almost allows you to ride that wave in every rep, which I think is really cool and organic. Um, but just that being said, I, I'm curious what you guys uh, would look at with, if you know, be it, be it on a mat or just instruction to an athlete. Uh, what some of your communication lines are for the quality and the time of ground contacts. Yeah, Rich, I'll take this one first. Just, uh, I know you'll segue into um, some more information that, that little hop big jump is, is really a perfect um, way of, we we've talked before about creating an environment or giving athletes a problem and enabling them to create their own solution with mm. it. So there's a few primary points perhaps that will suggest but just like you said the internal rotators are going to internally rotate and the upper body whip athletes are going to upper body whip and when we do an assessment or when we just simply introduce something like that so i think it enables the athlete an opportunity to um, face a challenge 
and come up with their own solution and how to do so. So anytime we kind of lay something out like that for them, we're able to see how they respond to that coaching feedback and we're able to respond. We're able to see how they respond to that challenge. So I think there's a lot of value in it and the way that even if it's just for a teaching point, even if it's just for an athlete, for an opportunity for that young athlete to be able to figure out, okay, if I want to get off the ground a little bit quicker, this is what I need to do. I've said before, I'm not the best with my words of explaining to an athlete how they have to do that. When you have a number that you can tell them to aim for, they're probably going to be able to come up with a solution on their own far better than I would have been able to explain them uh, to to get them in that position. So I see a lot of value in it. Um, and it's something that we use. If you were to ask me how often I'd say we use it on a, you know, once a week basis, there might be also some times that maybe I'm doing some form of drilling or again, it might naturally come out. And maybe some of our other locomotive plyometrics where I'm telling an athlete to skip for height or gallop for height, but be quicker off the ground and seeing how they how they respond to that. So I see a lot of value in it. We use it regularly, even if you don't necessarily have a tool to measure, um, which is what I like to uh, stress um, for many coaches that are in a position like mine at the high school level. They're probably not going to have the opportunity to have some resources that we have. And I understand that. And I think there's a lot of value in just you know, simply explaining a problem or a challenge to the student athlete. Again, it could be a gallop for height as high as possible, but on this next one, be quicker off the ground or gallop for height as quick as possible off the ground. And just like you said, height kind of be damned. I think there's, I think there's a lot of value regardless of yes, certainly it's helpful if you have a number that an athlete can, can aim for. You see a lot of competition come out in young kids, which is of course great for a training environment. Um, but there's also some things that you can do without without having the tools. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep piggybacking off of that, man. I mean, this is really like the million dollar question of like optimizing anything that we do as coaches. But I'll take the side of like the, the coach's point of view. So rather like trying to to frame what I'm about to say is to also educating the coaches on on what we're looking for because it, trying to help an athlete when we don't even really know what we're after too is obviously not going to be that helpful and i'll start by saying this like rsi in the early years of of discovering it through the just jump mat taught me more about biomechanics than biomechanics class did because mm -hmm. i thought i knew kind of how the muscle tendon complex worked and what stiffness was and what compliance was from a physics standpoint but i really didn't understand how important that was with like agility or with um really any athletic task in which an athlete is having to stiffen up and flow and just to cycle nonstop. And when we're talking about track athletes, it's a pretty simple just kind of gait process. But when you're talking about lateral movements, you know, things obviously get a little bit more complicated. And we always, again, will say, man, that athlete is so explosive because of just how well they can have that quick stiffness that's like insane amounts of force happening at that time to counteract the ground, but then use the ground to their advantage because they're storing so much energy which is elasticity in which the three of us can talk all day just on what that means to us. But, you know, the point that I want to make is in my experience of using this with athletes, I begin to learn more and more and more about what the optimal ground contact time is for the population I was working with. And at the end of the day, like it's, it's all about qualitative movement. Like RSI helps us quantify things for the purpose of qualifying them. Like we always have to remember that the movement quality matters more importantly than anything else, but having that kind of radar gun, if you will, of just measuring how fast that breaking ball was still kind of helps determine if it was a, a good pitch or not, or, you know, getting that information on ground contact times on any drill that you do is good. But what happens when you put that radar gun on an athlete and you tell them contact time, they start to just glorify it. And they start to think about, it's all about, getting that contact time, like, oh, I got yeah. a point zero nine that time, coach, or yeah. a point one. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's actually, you look ridiculous doing that. that. That looks nothing like the actual plyometric task I want you to do, especially if it's cyclical. Like, I want it to be under control and consistent. And that's where you, for sure, as a coach, need to identify this is no longer really productive. Cool that my 115-pound soccer player, that's pretty good, you know, I have 115 pounds exaggerating, but I, I have had some really small varsity level soccer players that are, you know, five, seven, five, eight, weighing 130 who were really good at getting off the ground. Like their contact times were insanely low 
with whatever task I was having them do is because they're small. Like they're, they just don't have as much force to deal with. They're really quick. So yes, they're very elastic, but they also are just small. And so just even the context of choosing your depth box height and, you know, recognizing the size of your athlete, like those are the questions that we also need to be asking to say, Hey coach, what's good on this drill for contact time. So, and I get that question a lot, having created the plyomat and having done these drills so many times across the board, the, the one drill that is my personal favorite for really helping an athlete understand how to be that inflated basketball and how to be really stiff is a, what I call speed box hop. So you basically just have a bunch of different heights of boxes. The athlete starts even, I don't care how athletic you are. I'd like them to start on a six inch box. So we're talking, you know, this big, they're starting on top, the mats behind them. They hop backwards off the mat briefly. We're not talking like a jump backwards off. It's just, I'm hopping off the box and getting right back on. John, have you done this before with some of your athletes, just kind of contact time wise? Yes. Not with, not with the mat though. Yeah. So I yeah, it's really good just to help them like identify like, oh, all right. So that was quick enough. And here it comes. They're they're anticipating that the ground is about to get to their feet or vice versa. And they're stiffening up the right time to get back on. So my most kind of elastic athletes who don't have to think about height because the box is there, the box serves as that, are the ones that, um, I mean, my best athletes are going all the way up to 24 inches. I mean, I have a... Uh, former athlete of mine she's a goalkeeper at ohio state she's starting right now as a sophomore and she could do 20 jumps in a row off a 24 inch box without breaking stride and all of them are like 0.18 or 0.19 and she's just wow. like popping off the ground like really twitchy really explosive those are the athletes that just can anticipate so well too when that ground is there and to stiffen up at the right time that's what that drill does for me in terms of like helping an athlete identify that and if it, if it looks good and you were green on all your reps meaning and this gets to my point of setting the contact threshold to point two so point two is kind of what i found as being that cutoff mark for when it's like a little too slow for this particular drill to get them to really do these fast plyometric actions and then raising the box height if they were able to get 15 or 20 and then going a little higher and going a little higher. So, so it's a different take than depth drop jumps and, and depth jumps. It, it's a lot. Um, it feels pretty natural for the kids because think about all the plyometrics we did when we were younger. You know, you just hop off mm -hmm. the bleachers, you know, or something. So, I mean, the task itself is pretty simple. But what I like about it is it really only focuses on the ground contact side. Um, they can just understand that part first and then now you start implementing depth drop jumps and stuff so i i always start with that with an athlete who hasn't really done a lot of plyometric stuff with me first and that's actually how i even warm them up for a test uh, before we start doing some big time rsi stuff where they're those vertical pogos man people don't realize like that's an intense test like yeah you have an athlete floating 20 inches in the air and now they have to anticipate that ground again like that's um, it's a lot to deal with in a very short period of time that athletes just aren't ready for. They, that's why they're hopping all over the mat. Like you kind of have to ease them into some of that stuff first. So, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the Marv Marinovich style. I think it was his brother Gary who showed me this like six years ago, five six years ago. Where you, yeah, basically you do that. You're you're hopping up and down to a box facing it, but then every time you hit the top, you tap the box with one foot, and almost from um. I guess from more the art side of doing it or the feeling side versus the data point side, it's hard to do that in a rhythm and not be fast off the ground. Because if you are long on the ground, you instantly lose the rhythm. It's like hop, tap, and it's almost becomes a thing where the, the pop off the ground kind of has to fit with the tap on the top of the box, if that makes sense, whatever the, the, the leg that it's comes up. up. Yeah. So, uh, Russian hopscotch is what we could call that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good term really for it. Similar. I mean, like, even ladder drills, everybody hates ladders for whatever reason. I mean, they just, it's because you have the, the trainers that are saying that it's speed work. But in reality, if, if I don't have a jump mat and I want to see like which one of my athletes are pretty elastic and like can, can have optimal ground contact time, like watch them jump rope, watch them do a ladder drill, watch them do any sort of line drill. I mean, that's, that's, those are the drills that actually help improve like low level elasticity i mean those are plyometric tasks and they're happening just so fast and so again typically your athletes that can fly through a ladder like my division one tennis athletes that were just phenomenal um 
on a concrete court, you know, that you get them on a ladder, man, they're just flying through that. So, so many of my court sport athletes who are having to do these, you know, hundreds of quick change of direction tasks over and over and over again in their sport are you're going to be your pretty elastic athletes. And that's, that was what sold me on RSI really early on is I, I took that just jump mat and I, I had a leaderboard going of all the uh, Olympic sport athletes at, at Corpus Christi. And we just had a contest like who, ha- who would have the highest RSI by the end of the week. And it was our uh, number one singles player for tennis, Hortense uh, Bosher. She's, and this is eight years ago. I mean, she was a baller and, and she was lean. So that helped her too. Our, our soccer forward, that was our best goal scorer, our Hall of Fame middle blocker that just got um, uh, indicted or uh, inducted. <laughs> indicted in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. Inducted in the Hall of Fame for, for Corpus Christi. I mean, those three athletes, I will forever remember for the rest of my life. And their RSIs were like 3.2, 3.1. Like, they were some of truly our best athletes at the university, three females that were just unbelievable at their sport. And and then of course we tested our whole track team and our best sprinters, jumpers and hurdlers were scoring the best. So at that point I was like, like I felt like I discovered Pandora's box. Things got more complicated as time went on, but these athletes could just use the ground to their advantage. I mean, it's the best way I could describe it for people that don't understand RSI. It's like you're, you're helping uh, quantify for an athlete like their relationship at the ground with with high forces and high speed i mean and a lot of it uh, had a high correlation with trap bar deadlift too these same female athletes that were scoring really high were some of our highest relative trap bar deadlift scores too and Stu mcgill actually did a research study um comparing rsi to core strength and he had a mm-hmm. bunch of different core measures that he used and it's a published article i mean it's it's core and rsi Lo and behold, they're highly correlated with each other. I mean, and how Stu McGill measured core, uh, you know, is a little different than than others. But there's so many good studies out there just to help us understand this connection between, you know, these rapid reactive strength type tasks, which are essentially plyometric in nature, and just overall, you know, strength that an athlete has. So, you know, that that's kind of a quick way. I don't know, you know, we're talking about contact time in this question, but just a quick way for people that don't really understand RSI. To know that, you know, it's not some just weird, you know, crazy metric out there, but it, it, from my experience, really helped me identify how athletic my kids were. I mean, it, just the kids get it, man. They just know that that ground is coming and they just can use it. You know, that anticipation is huge. It's interesting with the the core strength piece. I'm assuming because that was bilateral with the Stu McGill talking about that, where I could see that. I know in my own experience, like being at three, four, four on the jump mat not as good at high jump and triple jump, but my lifts were pretty good at that time too. Like my total body strength was actually phenomenal. And it's almost like, uh, it's almost like the bilateral is almost more of a total body stiffness. Like, can you instantly generate this? And obviously there's, there is, it's not, you're not like stiff, like in a cast, but there's things that have to rotate internally rotate, like your legs internally rotating a little bit on the ground. But then that double leg or that single leg, like, well, what changes? You still I'm sure any core, but just the the output, the changeover going to the foot and the ankle complex is just going through the roof. Um, I was thinking even too about, uh, you know, it's just like the the question is how do you easily measure it, you know, and and maybe in non track populations as well, where maybe they're not as good at bounding, skipping, and galloping. I was just still great to do it with all athletic populations, but um, I was even thinking about just doing stuff like uh, like a single leg, um, like Chris Corfist, Dan Fichter, and the the Inno Sport deal with. Um, like the single leg line hops over a battle rope or something like that, or single leg stair hops uh, back and forth on a single leg where like the box has to be pretty low. I think Chris for the forward and back uses like two or even only four inches. Like it's super low, but it's just, it's just foot, um, foot firing speed. So it's almost like, it's almost like, but to measure it, you have to go at least 10, 20, 30 seconds. So you can use a stopwatch. You can't, you can't just be like, Hey, five seconds. Cause the error rates are so high, but it's the nice thing to apply on that is you can, uh, it counts your reps as you go. So if you yeah. set it to like zero reps and you just like, you know, there's a, a guy in, in the UK that's been doing that right now. And he's like, has a son that he's training for track and he just will have him just go nonstop on one foot just to get like, and he'll just count how many reps did he get in 10 seconds or something like mm. that. So, you know, I mean, that that's the thing. We we can get into so many different unique protocols for trying to measure this reactive, this elusive reactive strength thing, unilateral, you know, frontal plane, 
Uh, I mean, there's just, there's so many ways to really assess it, but, you know, hopefully that anybody that's listening to this episode, you know, can really identify that, man, it, it truly is a matter of, of st- reactive strength. I mean, it's like those two words are as much as I'm like, well, is it really telling us what it is? Cause you know, we, there's stiffness and elasticity and these other terms that you want to work in with that, but reactive strength index really does a pretty good job of, of, of identifying both of those worlds colliding of like how much force am I producing in a short amount of time? I mean, that's the whole goal of it. And, and if, as long as we don't get too carried away with using so many different protocols, but stick to just a few and committing to those, then I think we'll find out more of what we really want to know about it, you know, with different populations. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but it, finding a good unilateral test to do is uh, I've, I'm still not there yet, you know, and I want to keep exploring that and I want to keep having these conversations, but you have to start with something. You got to like, at least start with one protocol that you like, that you feel like is natural and sticking with it. And I don't regret using the one that I'm using because it's really interesting to find out what I'm getting, but, but I would like to do one that's maybe more cyclical or more horizontal in nature. So, you know, it's not too late to adopt a new protocol. So I may have to do that now. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, Johnny, you mentioned the, like just giving athletes different experiences, like here, experience fast ground contacts, experience larger ones and fill in the gaps. And I think, you know, it it does highlight the way the nervous system learns from all these things. And I think that I I don't think I I know that is the base, like, especially I've heard, like it mentioned, like if you're teaching kids, uh, if you're taking kids through a warm-up, you can say, hey, stomp like a monster, you know, this round. All right. Now the next one, be light, like a, like a ballet dancer or like a cat jumping and, and they're experiencing different ways of moving their bodies, more force, less force, more finesse and all those things. But the thing, I guess, you know, the thing I think about in terms of using a single hit contact time stimulus, I, I view these all as like information. It's like this spectrum of information that I'm giving to an athlete. And to me, the contact time piece it's uh, like if we have coordination on one end of it and just pure power output, like, like neural output and drive on the other. To me, in my opinion, is it fits more on the drive end. Like if I'm doing a workout and I, I can only speak with this for myself personally, just because this isn't something that I've done um, with athletes um, in in-person training yet. But doing something like using a plyomat uh, or contact mat, actually the plyomat, I love it that it's got the two, the two mats. So like putting a hurdle in the middle and put the hurdle up to like a meter or something and then see how can I max my RSI over this. And in the midst of doing that, I might not be able to go out and do the best like dunk as if I specifically warmed up for dunking using a more coordination strategy or just played pickup basketball. But the how I feel a few days after that workout, I'm jumping better. I'm I'm my output. It's almost like for me it's like when we go into the single context, it's more in the output side of things, raw. And it's a perspective that I think you only get when you have the number in some senses. That's not to say that you can't get to a very high level doing all the other exploration, but I just think that's my opinion of where, at least in the sense of the workout itself, as that's added on. Um, I'd be curious, you know, you guys' perspective on that balance. I know we're running out of time a little bit too, but I'd be curious about the balance of those perspectives with with coordination and just more global stuff, the task orientation, like do these skips for this distance and how many versus something that's way more compressed um just any thoughts on that yeah the more the more compressed like single or double jumps i feel like the mo- the less jumps athletes can disguise some things yeah you know i think the more again to me i'm a pretty visual person i'm a track and field minded person i like seeing things kind of happen over space and i feel like it's very hard it's it's way more difficult to disguise things on some of those things that we do over a distance versus a single hop. Um, similarly in the same breath, although obviously in a very different way, I feel like when you go through multiple hops, the more multiple hops that you have, the more cyclical it is in, in nature, the tougher it is for athletes to disguise things because it's the reality of the way they're moving and the way they're responding to the ground. Um, so I see, I still think there's, you know, like I said, that's, that's our primary value that we still assess is how quickly we can get off the ground in that single small hop to a big jump. Um, but there's a lot to be said and a lot of value in the more, you know, repeat hops that you do, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, 
I even think about like Olympic weightlifting in in that context of like quantitative versus qualitative, like like anything that you have that is so skill dominant. And there's so much timing involved, and you have that like what I was alluding to earlier this this understanding of biomechanics of stiffness and compliance. Like when do the muscles relax versus when do they stiffen up? And the plyomat and reactive strength index identifies hopefully both of like the hang time, the flight time of when my body really is in displacement and when I am relaxed. And then also the, the key moment of stiffness also measured in time of, of how little time that I spend to achieve that. But the task will always be the most important thing. Our job as athletic development people that are using this piece of technology to get our athletes more elastic is to almost compress it as much as possible so that we can score it well and and consistently know that what we're trying to measure is actually getting measured and that's that that's where my brain goes almost like opposite of john's john's trying to like really expand this out and joel you you know listening to you over the years like you really try and absolutely connect this with the the global movement and then you know the 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 cognitive aspect of what's being seen and, and felt and heard. Whereas my brain always goes to like, how can I put this in a box and like really identify what I'm looking for? And I think both are good. Both are healthy because um, it is just so hard to measure almost anything with the human body. I mean, if, if I'm really trying to just remove as many variables as possible, like with, using the force plates and your counter movement jump. Like I, I put a stick on the kid's shoulders. So we put hands on hips. Why do we do hands on hips? And that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, I get asked that all the time. It's like, and John and I were, were talking about this earlier. Do we want to free the kids up to like use their arms or do we want to lock them down and go hands on hips, which feels awkward, but that's exactly kind of what we're talking about in this discussion of the two perspectives. It's like, do I really want to isolate what I'm trying to measure right now, which is lower body power or lower body bilateral reactive strength? Or do I want to let the athlete kind of just own the movement and explore their own strategy for for finding that? And so I think both are healthy. The problem is making the decision on kind of one way or the other, like not just being right on the fence of it. When we're talking about athletic assessment, like if I'm really trying to assess a quality, I, I need to be decisive on kind of what part of that fence I'm looking for and being okay with it shifting either way and letting an athlete kind of being free even because that's just what they chose as their strategy to try and score high. I mean, like that, that was their best effort. And then it's now up to us as, as global specialists to say, all right, that was acceptable or that was unacceptable. Just think about all the power cleans we see on, on Twitter and everywhere else of like, all right, he, he had a pretty decent catch and he was in the front rack and he didn't look like he was about to fall over and die. Like, you know, that that one video that was circling around and everybody was all upset about, you know, the I think it was the Penn State, you know, lifter doing a heavy power clean and he's kind of falling backwards, but he pushed it back in time. And, you know, half of Twitter's like, that was awesome, great lift. And the other half of Twitter, who's like, a, you know, who loves Olympic weightlifting is like, that was awful, you're going to hurt the kid. So, I mean, just really deciding, like, is getting the weight up more important as, as measuring his ability to really be explosive and, and have great lower body power and do this power clean, or is it the power clean itself? And I don't know if that's quite where you wanted that question to go, Joel, on that perspective, but that's what comes to my mind as, as I tried to tote that line to do it in a way where I am finding out this quality and, and what uh, score that they're getting. So I can know that I'm improving that athlete's ability to do that without sacrificing the qualitative side. I mean, that's, that's one of the toughest things with assessment in my opinion. Yeah. I think there's, there's an interesting spectrum and, and um, all valid and important things to train along all lines of that coordination, more global coordination, all the way down into compressing it down into key core abilities where those single contacts and more depth jump type stimuli come out. So, Hey, I know uh, we're running out of time here though. Uh, I'd love to ask a few more questions. I know we're going to get a little bit into some of the details of RSI, but um, just before we get out of here too, um, maybe just in a minute or less, if you guys have any closing thoughts, uh, or anything you had wanted to mention, um, throughout the course of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I was going to say is, and I, I told Joe's like, it'd be cool if we could mention this at the end, I'll do it in less than 30 seconds, but whatever technology you use to measure RSI and that, that I've used in the past, just, just know that they're different. And then the ground contact times that you get with the plyomat are more sensitive than the just jump mat. And, and for reasons that we don't have to have time to go in now, but 
but the standards are going to be different. But the most important thing, if we are really using this technology to like find out more about our athletes is that we're, we're, you know, consistently using that technology with our population and collecting that data and being smart with that data and, and establishing standards. So I, I've got plenty of standards up at this point for plyomat. I've got plenty of standards with the, with the just jump mat too, as well as force plates. So just kind of acknowledging that each piece of technology is going to give you slightly different scores, you know, because it's the electronics are different, simply put. Yeah. And I think, I think a couple things, certainly Rich touched on it earlier. I think being able to quantify something that's qualitative, I think is really cool. And that's a, a value of measuring RSI being able to, I feel like I've learned so much about how our um, student athletes move and how they're probably going to move when they sprint how they're probably going to move when they're on a jump runway, how they're probably going to move when they're changing direction on a football or soccer field. Um, we've found a lot of information about that just simply by introducing some RSI um, type of um, measurements and especially more specifically focusing on those ground contact times, seeing how the athletes respond and how the athletes move. So I think there's a lot of value there. That's one way I would encourage, uh, one reason I would encourage coaches to utilize um, the technology are more important, just the task. Um, and similarly, I think for me, Rich, Joel, we've talked about it so many times, just context is so big for me. And I think it adds context um, and it adds intent and it enables opportunities to have conversations with young student athletes to simplify things that seem so kind of like obscure probably to them. They, they don't understand necessarily immediately what these numbers are. But when you can discuss to them what those numbers are, what they measure and why we're using it, there's there's so much value in that. And I've had so many great conversations with some of our young student athletes about what what why we're using a drill, why there's some benefits to a gallop for speed, um, why they're having some success on a triple jump runway or not. And being able to use these numbers to kind of tie it all together has been immensely beneficial. So. Um, first and foremost, I certainly appreciate Rich for introducing it to me um, in many ways and and certainly educating me on it, on the matter. Um, but I also appreciate you guys being able to talk to two friends and spend the day together to be able to talk is is pretty darn awesome. So I, I certainly want to say a thank you to you both. Well, thank awesome, you. Bro. Yeah. Thank you guys for being on. Hey, I really appreciate Rich and John. Yeah, of course. Cool. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. I appreciate you being here. And I wanted to let you know also that this podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. I'm sure you've heard it mentioned throughout the podcast today. Of course, there's a ton of great training information in this podcast that you don't need a contact mat for. But if you do want to take your training to that level where you're gathering that data and getting that instant feedback that a training uh, switch mat can provide you, the Plyomat is an awesome option. Thanks again for listening. Appreciate you being here. And we'll see you next week.